Give it up one more time for the worship team. Hey, and shout out to everybody here that pushed through. Uh, you could have been at Bedside Baptist today, soaking in that extra hour of sleep. So we are grateful that you made it out today, especially people traveling from the far, far lands of Brooklyn and the Bronx. Uh, you guys have an extra mansion in heaven for sure. Hey, so in college, uh, I played basketball at Morgan State. Shout out to the Bears in the building. There we go. Uh, but, but actually, it's not all too impressive. In the three years that I played, we had 15 wins and 75 losses. And because of that, our coaches were always on edge. After my sophomore year, one of my coaches got fired. Uh, in my junior year, my coach was uh, always kind of looking over his shoulder, wondering whether or not he, too, would be fired. Uh, so we were always kind of walking on eggshells, always not trying to rock the boat, not trying to make him too mad because he was an unpredictable guy. Uh, but it wasn't all that bad. Sometimes we had, uh, like, a lot of perks that we enjoyed, like uh, we got our laundry done. All we had to do was take our, our, our nasty clothes, put them in this plastic bin, and the next day they would be hung up for us in the locker. Uh, but one day, we walked in in the morning, and uh, I don't know if it was a miscommunication between uh, the laundry personnel or what happened, but the same practice jerseys, the nasty, wet, sweaty practice jerseys that we put in the plastic bin were there in the exact same spot the next morning. So me being the vocal person that I was, I was like, yo, nah, I am not wearing this practice jersey. And I was rallying everybody on the team. I was thug clapping like, yo, if he thinks I'm going to wear that practice jersey, if he thinks I'm going to wear that. And I looked up, and, and one of my friends looked like he had just seen a ghost. And I knew that my coach had walked in, and he was standing right behind me. So I panicked. And I looked at everybody, and I said, put the jerseys on. I turned around like, oh, coach, I didn't know you were there. You know, uh, funny you're standing right behind me. Hey, 20-year-old Jordan panicked. 20-year-old uh, Jordan avoided having a conversation. And a lot of my teammates clown me to this day. Instead of sending me happy birthday texts, they send me put the jerseys on uh, <laughs> as, a, as a greeting. 20-year-old Jordan didn't like to have difficult conversations. And guess what? 34-year-old Jordan still doesn't love to have difficult conversations. Uh, but over the years, I've realized how important and how vital it is uh, to talk about some things out in the open. And how vital it is uh, that no matter how uncomfortable certain situations are, we really need to have certain conversations. And one of those conversations I want to have today as we finish uh, this series called It's Complicated. And it's about uh, the church and its relationship to the LGBT community. And uh, we're, uh, how do we navigate uh, LGBT relationships in New York City, in this community, in this country, and all these different things? Uh, but before we get into it, I want to make two qualifying statements. Uh, number one, uh, because even though I, I've gone to uh, a pretty liberal seminary and I've had lesbian and gay professors, uh, and I've had a lot of conversations about this, and I've read a lot of books, uh, I am no expert in sex or sexuality or any of these things, and I may use some combination of words uh, that comes off offensive. And if I do, uh, please hear my heart that I in no way intend to say anything offensive to anybody. Uh, the only people I like to offend are Patriots fans, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Amen. Everybody else, uh, uh, if, I, if I do make a mistake and say something offensive, please charge it to my head and, and not my heart. 
Uh, secondly, and equally importantly, uh, today we're going to be unpacking a lot of things from Scripture. And uh, to me, uh, Scripture is God's word to us, given through people. Uh, but for me, it's, it's God's word to us. And I realize that a lot of people here are new to church or new to this whole Christianity thing, or you're just coming back to church for like, from like 15 years away, and you really don't know where you stand on the Bible you don't know where you stand on Scripture, what it means, can you trust it, or any of these things. Um, and I'm going to be drawing some conclusions from Scripture, and uh, you may or may not agree with these, but just know that regardless of where you stand, I want you to know how valued you are here at Renaissance. And me as a pastor, I love pastoring a church where we have people who um, come from so many different backgrounds and are at so many different points in their spiritual uh, journeys. But it's really vital that we talk about this, uh, so much so um, that we have to talk about this, mainly because even in the last number of months, uh, several people here at Renaissance have come out the closet to me and to the community groups and to different people. And uh, above all, I want Renaissance to be a church that welcomes in everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. And I, I, I want everybody here that's LGBTQ, wherever you are on the spectrum, whatever your commitments are, whether you've committed to a life of celibacy or you don't know what you're going to do or whether or not you are going to pursue a relationship, regardless of what you believe, what you say, I don't want you to feel kicked out. I don't want you to feel like you're on an island, and I want you to know how welcomed you are. Now, here's why I say that, uh, because I think uh, a good gospel understanding of us as people uh, changes uh, almost everything, changes everything about the way we see God, the way we see community, and the way we see ourselves. And here's the gospel truth that I want you to get. If you don't get anything else, it's this. Your identity isn't your activity. Your identity is not your activity. So let's ground this for a second in a story, one of the most popular stories in Scripture. It comes from Luke 15. It's Jesus uh, telling a, a story about a father and his two sons. Uh, it's oftentimes referred to as the prodigal son. And you see this son who goes to his father in Luke 15, and it's a great story. If you've never read it, you should absolutely go home and read this one. And he goes home, uh, he goes to his father, and he says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I want my money. I want what I have now. The father obliges and gives him his share of the inheritance. And then uh, the son goes away, and two things happen. One, he starts spending his money uh, foolishly in, in sinful ways. And secondly, a part that we often uh, don't look at is that the son uh, encountered a famine. Uh, I read an article a couple of weeks back about how if you line up a bunch of different people and have them read the scripture from their perspective, different things come to surfaces. Um, and there were these people who read the prodigal son, and the point that they raised the most was that there was a famine in the land. And if there's a famine in the land, even though you didn't do anything, right, even though this is outside of your control, uh, extreme poverty is all over the land. So for two reasons, the son is absolutely broke, busted, and disgusted, right? He uh, uh, encountered a famine, and secondly, he started the money he did have, he spent it recklessly. Yeah. And here's what he believed. He believed his identity was his activity. So he is sitting in a pigsty, and he's starting to wonder, yo, I don't even have food for myself. I should just go back to my dad's house where I could at least be a hired hand. And I'm going to go back to my dad and say, dad, you know what? Let me just work for you. Let me just, you know, till the, the soil and the land. Let me just work for you in any capacity and, and kind of earn my way back. And here's what Scripture says, and here's the understanding that I want us to have going in this. Here's what, here's what happens. It says that as he headed home and his father saw him, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, this is the gospel message. Not that there's a bunch of people who got it all figured out, not that there are people who crossed every T and dotted every I, but rather there's a son who has made terrible mistakes. And there's a son who have had, who's had things happen to him uh, through no fault of his own. And he comes back expecting to have to work for it, and he finds a father that runs out to him and kisses him. And while he's trying to work his way back into good favor and trying to explain how badly he messed up, his father says, yeah, don't worry about that. Yo, kill the fatted calf. My son, which was dead, is now alive. And he threw a party for him. Now, that's the gospel message. That regardless of what you have done, regardless of what you are, who you're attracted to, that is no control to you, there stands a father that wants to welcome you back in with open arms. Gay, straight, whatever. We serve a God who, through the gospel, uh, allows our identity to not be our activity. That what we have done or any of these things, that we can have something that is separate and apart. Or Jesus or any of this. guys are not Christian, uh, and you're like, hey, listen, I don't know where I stand on God or Jesus or any of this stuff. Wouldn't it be great if your identity could be fixed? Wouldn't it be great if your identity didn't have to change based on how well you did that day? based on how much you read or how, well you, um, how much you served at a soup kitchen or any of these things, but if your identity could be fixed in the eternal love of a father, your identity is not your activity. Now, there's a lot of us in here who have done things that we wish we never did. There's a lot of us in here who are feeling shame, and listen, the last thing I want you to feel is shame, and here's why. In the story, it says the father ran to the son, and it was shameful for an older man to run. And for him to run, he took the shame of his son. And here's what Scripture tells us, that Jesus Christ scorned the shame and took the shame on our behalf when he was nailed to the cross, beaten and mocked and displayed for all the world to see. And that's what Scripture tells us, that Jesus Christ took our shame. And listen, the last thing I want anybody to feel here is shame. Now, um, uh, another reason we have to talk about this uh, today is that there are a lot of people in here who have some really pretty negative reactions, uh, and you probably were squirming in your seat like, man, I don't know why in the world I came to church today. I could have been, br- been at brunch somewhere, and I'm in church listening to this, and you're squirming, and you're uncomfortable already, um, and you wish you didn't come today. Listen, I-, I get it. I get it. You don't have to look hard and long to find out experiences and examples of where the church is isolated and throwing a gay community, the LGBTQ community, on an island and throwing rocks at them. You don't have to look hard for that. And there's a couple of statistics uh, that I read that uh, broke my heart this, this week as a, as a father. Um, and we wanted to promise that as a community, my, ho- my heart for everybody is that we will be the type of community that welcome people in. And here's a couple of statistics that I read um, that I think a lot of us even have to own and apologize for in some capacity. Uh, LGBT youth are four times more likely to commit uh, suicide. Fifty percent of trans youth have, com- have considered committing suicide. When I was typing this week, um, my son, who's learned how to crawl, started crawling towards the room, and I thought about a world where he would want to kill himself because of his attraction. And listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But I, I do hope and pray that we would 
Christians could engage in the conversation in a way that is helpful, in a way that dignifies people, that dignifies people. And as a part of the Christian community that, uh, as I've been a Christian for 15 years, listen, I've been a, a part of, of circles where people have said and, and uh, really just put people on an island, and you know what? I'm sorry. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to have to punch a wall when I get out of here to film manlyism. And thirdly, since this is New York City, a lot of us, if not everybody in here, have family members, friends, loved ones, classmates, coworkers, roommates who are LGBTQ, and you're increasingly finding it difficult to navigate uh, your Christian world and your friend world, or whatever these circles are, because you're seeing a, a divide. Now, I want to look at a really uh, popular passage of Scripture today from John, the Gospel of John, uh, the fourth chapter. Uh, it's a, one of the most famous scriptures in, uh, in the Bible, in the Gospels, and it's really famous for a reason. John 4, 4 through 26. Uh, and it's a pretty long passage of scripture, so we're not going to read through each part in detail. But listen, when you guys get home uh, tonight, tomorrow morning, read through this passage of scripture in its entirety, John 4, 4 through 26. It's one of the most compelling and amazing uh, stories uh, of scripture that, uh, that I've ever read. And it's an amazing account that gives me hope. That gives me hope that things don't have to uh, always be this divide that we see. And here's what's going on in the scripture. Um, Jesus, it says in verse 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he comes to uh, a town in Samaria, and he stops and he sees this woman at the well. And uh, it was about 12 noon. And what's going on here is that Jesus stops at the well. And uh, at the very beginning, uh, you see Jesus doing some stuff that is so unlike what other religious people would have done. Uh, he goes to the well, and it's 12 noon, and he immediately starts crossing some barriers. Uh, the woman says in verse 9, uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That there's this divide. Listen, I don't even know why you're talking to me, bro. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And immediately, Jesus is crossing gender barriers, and he's crossing uh, ethnic barriers to have this conversation with this woman. And not only that, uh, he's crossing some moral boundaries um, and barriers. Uh, now, most scholars would agree that the reason this woman was out here at noon wasn't because she was trying to draw water. Now, everybody who was drawing water would have gone first thing in the morning, 6 a.m., before the sun was out. You're talking about Jerusalem, and like it's like 115 degrees outside. It's like standing on the subway platform at 2 5th, like in August, right? <laughs> Like, you would not just voluntarily stand on a subway platform unless you had to. So most scholars agree that the reason she was outside at noon, sitting by the well, wasn't because she was really trying to draw water, it's that she was a prostitute, and she was trying to meet new clients. So this is what Jesus does. He talks to a woman, and men in the patriarchal society had no dealings with women. It was shameful, and it was inappropriate. He crosses ethnic barriers to talk to a Samaritan, even though he, a Jew, would have been seen as a traitor, and he crosses this moral boundary. Now, no rabbi or priest would have been caught dead sitting next to a prostitute. Maybe if the prostitute came to the temple, but he wouldn't go on their turf. So Jesus goes on her turf, crosses all of these barriers, and this is what he does. He tells her, he sits down, he says, hey, 
You should just automatically stop doing what you're doing, and then once you get good enough, you can follow me. No, he doesn't say that. Verse 14, he says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them in, uh, in them is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers this woman who is in the middle of trying to pick up clients, who is not remorseful. He offers her eternal life. Why could Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew that our identity is not our activity. If our identity were our activity, if we had to earn this, then Jesus could have never in a million years, in a billion years, even had this conversation uh, with her. But he offers her free grace, eternal life, the living water that he and he, can get, he alone can give, and he does it because Jesus knew this gospel truth that our identity is not our activity. Our identity is not our activity. Now, one of the trends I've seen in churches um, is before we get to anything else, Listen, just tell me straight up and down, is this right or wrong, sinful or not? First thing first, and we don't see Jesus doing that here in this scripture. And I'm not saying, yo, take your, your convictions and chuck them to the side. I'm not saying that, and we're going to get to that in a second. But what I am saying is this, if Jesus were willing to put himself in moral uh, disrepute, that people would question his reputation, question how pure he was, his religious purity, his uh, spotlessness, that other uh, rabbis and priests would look at him like, why is he hanging out with this woman? That other Jews would look at him like, why is he hanging out with the Samaritan? If Jesus is willing to cross all of these barriers and offer this woman the gospel, it means this. The message that Jesus would preach to straight people is the gospel. The message that Jesus would preach to LGBTQ people is the gospel. And I've never seen... I've, I've never seen um, any other uh, issue inside Christendom put on such an island where before we get to anything else, before we can offer people the, this reckless love of Jesus Christ and God, that we have to first correct their behavior. Jesus makes this free offer to a woman that was not remorseful for her behavior. And the first thing he does is offer uh, her this free grace in the gospel. Now, before we get to anything else, can we please just commit to asking people questions about their lives? Can we please just, listen, we'll get to some other stuff, but before we get to anything else, can we please commit to, to just learning? Can we sit down and listen? We have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Can we just listen? Can we just listen to how people are hurting? Can we learn new terminology? Go on Google. Listen, ignorance is a curable disease. And I know this because I'm speaking from personal experience. Can we learn new terminology and making sure that we're understanding the, some of the, the dangers that people are experiencing in our communities where it's homelessness or, or loss of jobs and all these different things? Nobody, nobody in here would say, hey, if there's somebody who drinks too much, they should be homeless and they should be out on the street. Nobody would say that. And if, if that were happening to people, you would want to stand up for them. And listen, I don't know all the answers to what the way forward is, but I do know this. That Jesus, because we follow a savior like that, that is that reckless, we can risk a little bit of our reputation. We can risk, we can risk it all, as a matter of fact, knowing that we have a God for us that, listen, he risked it all for us, and we can risk it for our brothers and sisters. And we don't have to run and jump into conversations about, uh, you know, before we invite you, let me just let you know, no, man. Listen, John 16, Jesus tells us that uh, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin. And, and I, yes, amen. And it's not our, 
And I'm, again, I am not saying take your convictions and throw them out the door. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the same gospel that saves me, a reckless sinner, prideful man, is the same gospel that is the power of the gospel that Paul talks about in Romans 1.16 that I'm not ashamed about. It's the power of God unto salvation for everybody. And we got to be reckless in offering that and being in a listening position, learning what new terms mean, listening to people, that is undisputably the way forward. Now, uh, on the other hand, uh, we see Jesus doing something in this scripture that is not uh, as comfortable uh, for the other reason. Um, Jesus is talking to this woman. She said, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep on coming here to draw water. He told her, hey, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, right? This is like uh, housewives of Jerusalem. (laughs) And she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Uh, And Jesus gets into a beautiful conversation on... um, on worship and what true worship means. And here's, here's what Jesus does, uh, something that's not super tolerated in our culture, is he confronts her about her sexual behavior. Now, Jesus has already offered her reckless, free grace, but he also, equally, after he has engaged in her in his conversation, he has earned the right to speak into her life, he then confronts her sexual behavior. And here's why I believe Jesus does this, because Jesus is concerned about our souls, and he doesn't want us believing things that would take us away from God. Um, And in this scripture, we see um, a a characteristic of Jesus that we see actually all throughout the Gospels. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus was confronting people about their issues. He confronted a rich man, uh, the rich young ruler, about his greed and his uh, unwillingness to, to give it all away. And listen, it's not just that Jesus will confront people about things that hurt other people. Jesus will confront us about things that hurt us. He will confront us about things that hurt us and that would push us away from God. So Jesus confronts this woman um, and he um, talks to her in really plain ways about what does it look like to live a life of uh, good sexual behavior. Now, here's the only reason I want to talk about this. Uh, it doesn't probably, we don't go a week or so without somebody asking me uh, the big question, hey, where does Renaissance stand? And they want me to make a definitive stance on um, and give a, a long, sometimes through email, and I hate doing long emails. Um, and this is not to say don't email me, but don't. Um, <laughs> and this is something that I would love to have a, a, a conversation about. Now, when you think about the word sin, uh, I got a really good revelation of what this means. Um, I went to uh, Brooklyn the other day, a couple weeks ago, with a friend for his birthday uh, to look at Goth- to go to a place called Gotham Archery. And Gotham Archery is an archery place for those keeping score at home. And um, that's your boy right there, all Hunger Games out. <laughs> now, I, it's, I found that I had a lot of fun for two reasons. One, I am fully prepared for the zombie apocalypse if and when <laughs> it happens. And secondly, I got a really fresh definition of what it means to sin. Uh, The original definition essentially means missing the mark, right? So in archery, you aim and you try to hit the mark, but then oftentimes you miss it. I hit the mark more than Aswan did, um, (laughs) but I I still missed it (laughs) a a good amount. And in so many areas of our lives, we, we miss the mark, right? Uh, a good mark for uh, the way we spend our money, for example, is generosity. And so many times for me personally, and certainly for you guys, right, we miss the mark, and we're not as generous uh, as we ought to be. 
And I don't think the solution is just to say, well, there is no Mark, and just love people, because I don't think that's what Jesus does in Scripture. But Jesus does define what the Mark is. And here's what I believe after a lot of research, after a lot of conversations, a lot of tearful conversations, I believe that the Mark that God has established from eternity and will always be through eternity is one man marrying one woman. And please don't clap. I'm not saying this for any applause or try to rally any troops around a point. I believe that's the mark, and here's why I believe that's the mark. We see it in Scripture, and so many people, when we have this conversation, we think, well, Leviticus says this, or Paul says this, but I think Jesus himself gives us the mark in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 3 through 5, Jesus is having this conversation with some Pharisees, and they're talking about divorce and marriage and all these different things. And these Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, and they're like, yo, Jesus, can I divorce my wife for any reason? Like, if I don't like her potato salad, right? Like, if she, if she doesn't put enough eggs in her potato salad, can I just divorce her, right? If she doesn't listen and she doesn't get the recipe right, can I divorce her? And Jesus goes back to something um, in Genesis 1. He says, hey, haven't you read, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become... Uh, one flesh. And Jesus quotes Genesis 1. And one of the reasons I believe Jesus quotes Genesis 1 is as we've talked about in our series called Words of Life, uh, in every point of Jesus's life, he read and prayed through and devoted his life to Scripture. And a lot of us have a problem with Scripture. But listen, the life of Jesus is so full uh, of, of Scripture that if you were to cut him, he would bleed Scripture. So when he's asked something, he doesn't respond uh, just out of the blue. He says, listen, haven't you read? And Jesus, Jesus ratifies the sexual ethic that you see all the way in Genesis 1, all throughout the Scripture. And I would argue that even though some people disagree, that this is a mark that Jesus was talking about. Now, there's a, a number of good objections that people have, and I want to spend some time on these objections, mainly because, listen, as a pastor and as a friend, I don't want people investing their lives in things that I think will take you away from God. And I don't want to beat anybody up. My, that's not my goal here. Trust me when I tell you that's not my goal here. But I want us to be steered in a direction uh, towards, towards God. And this is the best that I, I know how to do it. Uh, and the first objection that a lot of people use is Jesus himself didn't expressly use those words. Right? Jesus himself never says you can't uh, be in a LGBT relation, a gay relationship. He never said it, right? So if Jesus is silent, then we should be silent. And first, that's an argument itself from silence. There's no um, indication that Jesus was offered to talk about it and he declined to give a comment. As a matter of fact, all throughout the scripture, whenever you see uh, conversations happening with Jesus, he's mostly talking to religious rulers. Now, the issue of, uh, of um, LGBT relationships was so settled within uh, ancient Jewish culture that it would have been shocking if he did bring it up. So the fact um, that we don't see it is mainly because uh, it, wasn't, it was a non-issue. And the fact that gospel writers didn't devote a lot of time wasn't because it was a hot-button issue that Jesus declined to talk about. It was simply in the same way that Jesus never mentions the word idolatry, Right? Because the leaders that he was talking to, the conversations that he was having, uh, he didn't, you know, it was such a settled issue that building an altar, building a, like a, having a Buddhist, a Buddha statue in the, in the uh, Buddha statue in the window was idolatry. It wasn't even an issue. So Jesus never has to actually say the word idolatry. But he did talk about fidelity to God, right? He did talk about our simple and pure devotion to one God, the Creator of the of the universe. So Jesus doesn't, mean, but nobody here would say 
hey, since Jesus doesn't mention the word idolatry, it's okay for us to do it. Right? When I go to the Chinese takeout spot, I'm going to bend my knees to the, to the Buddha statue in the window before I get my general souls, right? Like nobody would say that's a, a, a good argument. And the same thing is true. And also, I'll, I'll say this. It would be cruel of Jesus to be silent on something that he could have corrected. Like if, if Jesus' intention were to um, uh, uh, create a level playing field where all relationships were, were equal in Jesus' eyes, um, then it would have been cruel for him to not say anything. Like, why would he leave people in limbo if that were the case? So I don't think that conversation, the argument uh, that Jesus never uses a word is, uh, really holds water, mainly because he does talk about relationships in general. And every time Jesus talked about relationships, every time every New Testament, Old Testament author talked about relationships, they're going off of the mark that was established in Genesis 1. Now, the biggest argument that I, that I hear that is making a lot of traction now is that the type of relationships that were um, decried in, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, they're different from the relationships that you see today. And to a certain degree, that's, that's somewhat true, right? Um, there were some things going on in ancient Greece that dudes were bugging, right? Like they were just having crazy stuff going on. Uh, but again, that's another argument from silence because there's nowhere in history, and I'm not talking about Christian history, I'm talking about in history in general, that would lead us to believe that there were no um, equal playing field, monogamous relationships, gay relationships in antiquity. As a matter of fact, there absolutely were those relationships. And even when scripture uh, talks about uh, LGBT relationships, it's not talking about um, the manner in the way they're done. It talks about the nature, right? So in one of the most popular scriptures as at the central second debate, is um, Romans 1. It says, even their woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now, to be true, there were absolutely excesses in the way that people did things. What Paul is talking about here is going back to Genesis 1, the same source that Jesus pulled from, is not the type of relationships, but it's, uh, it's not, the, it's not the, the way these relationships were, were, were handled. It's simply that the, the type, the nature of the relationship is one that is missing the mark. Now, one of the things that Paul says here, and you know, these are conversations that we're going to have, I suspect, for weeks or months or years here at Renaissance, is that Paul mentions uh, women uh, having um, women in, in lesbian relationships. And one reason I believe that this is one of the strongest arguments is this. There were no uh, examples of ex exploitative relation lesbian relationships in antiquity. Men, yes, men have been doing crazy things forever and forever will be doing crazy things. Women have always had more sense uh, and weren't, um, weren't, yeah, amen to that. And there, there, are no really, there are no examples that we can draw from to say that there were exploitative lesbian relationships in antiquity. So for Paul to say, uh, to have this, this comment and to say that uh, lesbian relationships and gay relationships, they weren't the design, he wasn't commenting about the type of relationship. I mean, he wasn't commenting about the way that people were interacting, that one person was exploiting the other. He was talking about the, 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 the actual nature of the relationship was something that missed the mark. And he was talking about God's created order back to Genesis 1. In uh, Romans 1, it also talks about the passion that they had one for another. So Paul is not talking about um, uh, somebody who's being dominated. He's saying, no, listen, these are the relationships, the love that they have one for another. These are equal playing field relationships that, that, that scripture here also says is missing the mark. Now, this is huge. Uh, this next one right here is that Christians 
Uh, the next argument I hear, which is also a kind of good one, is Christians pick and choose which part of the Bible you're going to follow, right? Doesn't the Bible say you can't eat bacon? Doesn't the Bible say you can't eat shrimp? But right after church today, there'll be a bunch of ladies with white stockings on headed to Red Lobster, <laughs> right? Get in the shrimp baskets. But doesn't Scripture say that? Don't do that. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. So, aha, Christians are picking and choosing, right? Y'all just like, you just like bacon too much, but yet, but now you want to throw stones at other people where Scripture condemns everything, and you're just picking and choosing because you're hypocrites. Now, to be clear, Christians are hypocrites because we're all hypocrites. We talked about it, but not for this reason. Um, and uh, depends on you, what your approach is to Scripture. We talked about this a little bit in how to read a Bible class. Um, if you read the Bible as a bunch of instructions on what you have to do to go to heaven one day and so that God is not mad at you, then it is very difficult to pick and choose which one makes sense for you to follow. But the Bible is not a book about what you have to do to get close to God. It's a story of God and what God has done to get close to us. And in the Old Testament, you had something called a sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system was the way that men could approach God. So once a year, the high priest would go into the veil, would go into the, the temple, and he would go behind this veil called the Holy of Holies. And when he would get back there, he would have a rope tied around his leg. And the rope would be just, if, just in case he dropped dead, that spot was so holy and you couldn't even enter it that instead of even going after him, you had to drag, drag him out. And here's what happened when Jesus uh, was on the cross. It says the veil was ripped in two. In John 1 and 27, the words that John uses to describe Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the reasons Christians don't participate in any of the sacrificial system laws and, and all of the purity approaches to how you have to approach God and, and the ceremonial food laws and hand washing and all of these things is this, because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has come and he has been the perfectly acceptable sacrifice. And that his sacrifice, once and for all, pay the debt. And it would be like if you and I go out to dinner and you rack up a bill that you can't pay. If I whip out a $100 bill and throw it in the counter and pay for your food, you're no longer obligated to that restaurant. You, no long, you don't have to go in the back and wash dishes uh, for that restaurant. You don't have to do any of that stuff. The bill has been paid. And here's what Christian theology teaches about Jesus. He is a spotless lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. His sacrifice was completely acceptable to God. And when he died on the cross, the veil on the temple was ripped in two, and you and I are freely able to access God through Jesus Christ. So the sacrificial system and all of its laws are moot. But the moral laws, don't kill anybody. That's a good one. That stays on the books. Don't commit adultery. I like that one too. That stays on the books, right? All of these laws about human flourishing, right? Not ceremonial laws and how we have to do these things. And also sexual ethics. We see these restated and repeated in the New Testament. So it's not Christians who are just picking and choosing which laws they want to follow. It is Christians have completely abandoned the old sacrificial system because Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, was, is perfectly acceptable to God. Now, the last um, argument that I want to talk about, and this one is probably the most difficult, is that it's not fair. And it's the conversations I've had with people like, so you mean to tell me that I have to tell my loved one who has same-sex attraction that for the rest of their lives they're going to be lonely and miserable? And first of all, shame on us if that's what single means, lonely and miserable. But it's not fair. Why is it you get to be married and they don't? And here's where I think 
uh, we, we get off track in our conversations, and I think we lose perspective about what this world is. We live in a very broken world where things are not the way they ought to be. And a lot of stuff is not fair. It was not fair that when I was 28, 29 years old, I watched my wife wither away from a beautiful woman to 85 pounds and die. While my friend, who was having an affair on his wife, she was alive and happy and pregnant with like their third kid. It wasn't fair. Why did it happen? I have no idea. But we live in a broken world. It's not fair that there are singles in this community, beautiful, uh, beautiful, amazing people who long to be in a satisfying relationship and they can't find anybody to spend their life with. And they're concerned that they'll never be able to have kids. Um, and some of you guys might not get married or ever be able to have kids. And meanwhile, there's other people, right, that aren't trying to live nearly as good as you're trying to live. And they're all on Instagram with their perfect life and their perfect family. And she's like 200 likes. And you're like, how do you even get that many likes on Instagram? <laughs> and guess what? It's, it's not fair. Why does it happen? I have no idea, but we live in a broken world. There are couples in here, and I know a number of, uh, they can't have kids, and they've tried and tried and tried, and have had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. Meanwhile, there are other couples, if they just look at each other, they'll be pregnant. <laughs> like, they're walking around with sunglasses on, like, don't even look, don't look. <laughs> pregnant again? <laughs> hey, why does it happen? I have no idea. We live in a broken world where things are not fair. Listen, and perhaps um, there's people in the room, uh, my wife was one and other people who are widows. They were planning who's going to do the dishes in the morning, and that night they were planning a funeral of their husband that was tragically killed in an accident. Listen, and other people, pedophiles live to 100 sometimes. We live in a broken world. I have no idea why things operate the way they do. And sometimes, listen, we live in a broken world. It's not fair that I was born in New York and I have to root for the Knicks. <laughs> you had to, I mean, since, yeah, it's not fair. But listen, we live in a broken world. <laughs> but the grace of God is, is here for all of us. Hey, but I think if we're looking through that lens, I think we are actually misunderstanding the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. In his book, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, an author I quote uh, quite liberally, he's one of my favorite authors, uh, he talks about a woman that came up to him one Sunday after church. And after church, uh, she says, listen, man, this whole thing called the gospel is a pretty scary idea. And he was like, what do you mean? Like, he thought he was being loving and, like, gracious. And, like, how is it scary that I'm telling you you're accepted through no work of your own? And she says, and she says this, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by, saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And immediately you see the two edges of the gospel on one. It cuts away fear. It cuts away uh, despair that we're not accepted. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it says that we are bought with the price. You are bought with a price. Paul, often in his letters, starts off his letters by saying, Paul, a slave to Jesus Christ. He knew that his body was, was not his own, and Paul, would end up, Paul and other apostles would end up being martyred, martyred and killed for their faith. They knew that they were not their own. Lives weren't preaching this reckless gospel to everybody. They knew that their lives weren't uh, up to their own decisions. And straight people, LGBTQ people, I think 
uh, we're missing the mark when we think that God owes us anything. I think we're missing and we're, we're not even uh, listening and contemplating the, the implications of the gospel. We're thinking that the reason God has accepted us is because of what we've done. But if it comes at Jesus' infinite cost through no work of our own, then there's no limit to what he can ask of us. But shame on us still if, uh, what does it mean as a, as a single person or unmarried person that you um, are just consigned to a life of misery. And I, and I don't want to um, negate how painful it is, but listen, the biggest proponents of what I'm talking about today, Jesus and Paul, both single men. And they had a pretty fulfilling life. In his book, Washed and Waiting, uh, Wesley Hill is an author. He is a man, you know, he's known his entire life that he had same-sex attraction. He tells a story in a book where uh, he's at a wedding and he's dancing with this beautiful woman and he's like just hoping hoping to feel something. You know, she's got a nice dress, see her neckline, and he's like, all right, I'm going to feel something. Like most men try not to look, right, for a period of reasons. Like he was trying to look like, can I please feel something? And he didn't feel anything. And he talks about how crushed he felt that day. And I don't want to negate how crushing it is for people uh, to be on an island and to feel ashamed. This is what he says uh, about his fears. He says, many times I'm seized with terrible doubts and fears mostly about my friend's love for me, whether it's solid or not. I sometimes feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride from joy to turmoil. It seems that hardly a week goes by without at least one night of black despair. My anxiety is most acute in my relationship with friends, particularly, particularly my closest one. I too seem to have a very deep need for love and intimate communion and deep knowing of another. Now I'm closing my heart and soul that no relationship seems to satisfy. Now, I'll let Wesley Hill just give us his thoughts. He says, more and more, I have the sense, this is Wesley Hill talking, and his book is called Washed and Waiting. He says, more and more, I have the sense that what many of us need is a new conception of perseverance and faith. We need to reimagine ourselves and our struggles. People with same-sex attractions who profess Christian faith will accept their desires as their cross, as a providential part of their struggle to glorify God. And listen, this is only done in a Christian, gospel-centered community that affirms people, that affirms people, that affirms people, where people can be themselves, they can have their struggles, they can have their issues in the same way you got your struggles, you got your issues. They don't have to hide anything. They don't have to hide their attraction. They don't have to hide any of these things, but they're loved and welcomed and challenged here as a part of the family. And listen, you don't have to have all the answers, but I do want us to commit to, to be uh, in a learning position as a community, to be uh, the type of people who will ask questions and to be the type of people who will invest recklessly in the lives of others. And that we would point people to the hope that, listen, our, our lives, our identity is not our activity. And the last thing I'll say is this, one of the most difficult parts of this conversation and the only part that I will kind of forcefully push back against um, some of my LGBTQ brothers is that you have merged your identity with your sexual attraction. And I don't think anything in this life, nothing, no person, no attraction, no relationship can ever bear the weight of your identity. Nothing. Straight people, gay people, wherever you are, um, listen, nothing can bear, bear the weight of your identity. And your identity is not your attraction. Your identity is not your activity. And if we do, if we, if we forget that, we'll lose the power that the gospel offers us to have something that's fixed in Christ, in God, the love of a father that comes to meet us even when we're a long way off. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, um, man, I just, I'm so grateful for the privilege I get to be a part of this church and to uh, be a part of your kingdom and to be a, a recipient of your grace. God, forgive me for the times that I've withheld grace to other people because I felt uh, so self-righteous or I felt um, that you liked me because of the things that I've done and not simply because you're a father who pours out his love. Father, have mercy on us. God, I pray that you would um, equip us and engage us to help us be the type of community that welcomes in everybody. Father, I pray for the conversations that people are going to have today, tomorrow, next week, going forward. Uh, God, that they would be seasoned in grace, seasoned in humility, seasoned in listening, and not trying to, to win a point. Father, would you bless us? In Jesus' name we pray.